led by Jesus Christ in a humble way. And that our understandings of what humility is today would be challenged by the words of John the Baptist as he responds to his disciples' questions. Let me begin our passage in John chapter 3 this way. Remember, the, seer, the season is shifting from Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus to John the Baptist and his disciples. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. John chapter 3, verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples, that's after the conversation with Nicodemus, went into the Judean countryside. And he remained there. Jesus remained there with his disciples and he began baptizing people. His disciples began baptizing people. We know from other scriptures that actually it wasn't Jesus that was doing the baptizing, but his disciples that was doing that baptizing. Verse 23, John, John the Baptist, also was baptizing at Anon near Salim. Salim is where we get the word shalom, peace from. He was baptizing in the town of Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. And then in parentheses, John says, for John had not yet been put in prison. The scene is set for us. That's the introduction to this next scene, and the scene is set. And John says, the scene is this way. Jesus and his band of merry men, his band of disciples, are over in the Judean countryside baptizing. And John the Baptist and his band of merry men, they're over at a town called Anon near Salim. And they're also baptizing. And this controversy arises among John the Baptist's disciples. And first of all, but before we dig in, let's try to understand who's John the Baptist. New character for us, haven't been uh, talking about John the Baptist for some time. So let me remind us who this guy is. Who is JB, as his buddy has surely called him, or J the B, as was his hip hop name on the streets, just to give him a little cred. J the B was an incredible man who had been given. <laughs> Sorry, I just sneaked that in. I shouldn't have said that. J the B was this incredible man who God had assigned a very specific task. He was the herald for the Messiah. All through history, God had said throughout the Bible, one day God's going to fix the brokenness, and it's going to come in the form of a person. Get ready, look for him. And in the Old Testament it said, by the way, one of the ways you're going to recognize the Messiah when he comes, one of the ways you're going to recognize your hope when he comes, is I'm going to send a forerunner. They didn't give his name back then, but John the Baptist showed up on the scene after 400 years of spiritual silence. No prophet in all of Israel. Then all of a sudden, a prophet named John the Baptist shows up, starts baptizing people in the name of repentance and saying, hey, guess what? I'm that guy. I'm the guy that's been sent before the Messiah. I'm preparing people for the coming of Jesus Christ. When we encounter John the Baptist today, he's doing just that. He's doing the work of a herald baptizing people in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. Verse 24 is this interesting little verse in, in, in parentheses. Uh, John says, he hadn't yet been thrown in prison. You see, what would happen to John a few chapters later, John the Baptist, is that he was this man that was fundamentally committed to God's word. He studied this thing. He lived by it. He breathed it. He devoured it. And then he confronted people on it. He was so bold that he confronted the king of the land, Herod the Tetrarch. He confronted the governor with God's word, and he said, hey, your marriage, that's unlawful. You shouldn't be married the way you are. You see, Herod the Tetrarch had married his brother's wife. He had forced his brother to go through a divorce and then married that woman. John the Baptist looked at scripture, went to a man who was not a godly man, brought the Bible with him, and said, hey, Herod, 
I just want you to know, as a preacher of the word, that's not what godly marriage looks like. God's got something better for you than that. Didn't go over too well with Herod's family. They threw him in jail, and the next scene is he got his head cut off and handed to Herod's wife on a silver platter. John the Baptist was a radical. Today we're going to talk about humility, and the last thing I want you to think is that humility is weakness. When we talk about John the Baptist, this was a wild man. This was a man who was rough and tough. The text says, the Bible tells us that he lived in the wilderness, he survived on locusts and wild honey, that he wore camel's hair clothing. The Bible goes out of its way to say this man was wild in nature, conformed utterly to God's word. And yet, if you were to meet him, you would say, I don't know if I want to be friends with that guy. His life uh, is is not the comfort that I want in my life. Uh, that type of lifestyle would make me anxious. I want a whole lot of things from God, but being a radical for God like John the Baptist doesn't fall in line with the progress of the plan that I've written for my life. John the Baptist, as a prophet, you would have hated if you met him face to face. You know, the reality is with prophets, that's what always happens. We love dead prophets, don't we? We love building monuments to dead prophets and saying, look how great those men were. But the reality is that prophets, when they're alive and they're confronting people about their sin, no one likes them. No no one's a fan of them. No one likes being confronted with their sin. John the Baptist got up in people's face. And what we need to learn from John the Baptist, first and foremost, is that this conversation of humility we're having today, humility is not weakness. Humility is strength. It's just strength based on the right thing. Humility is not passive. Humility is active. It's just active in the right way and coming from the right source. John the Baptist was a radical, but not for the sake of being radical. He was radical because he was submitted to God's word. The text tells us what we just read, that a dispute arose among John's disciples about purification. Now, we don't know exactly what that means. I don't know the exact details of this this dispute, but we can kind of assume they were baptizing people, this idea of purification. And, And the scene is set in such a way that it's saying, hey, look, Jesus was beginning to baptize over here, and, and John was baptizing over here, and people are leaving John's baptism and going to Jesus' baptism. See, John the Baptist was a celebrity. Everyone knew John the Baptist. He was the first prophet in 400 years. Everyone knew his name, and his disciples had a pretty good thing going. Man, they were underneath the most famous guy in all of Israel. They loved the crowds coming to them to be baptized. What's this Jesus guy doing baptizing down the street? And why are the crowds suddenly leaving our baptism and going to Jesus and his baptism over there? That's not what we want to see happen. Dispute arises among them, and they come to John the Baptist to clarify. Hey, John, you, you okay with less people coming over to you to be baptized and going over there? Should, should we send some spies and, and go and bring them back over here? Your ministry's shrinking a little bit, John the Baptist. You okay with that? John responds in a way that defines humility for us biblically. And I think from this, John's going to pose three questions that I see in the text that we can begin asking ourselves about whether or not we're living with spiritual humility. John answers, verse 27. Let's just look at this single verse. John answers them this way. Uh, 
They come to John, they say, and they came to John, said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, that's Jesus, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from God. Sounds like a simple statement, but let's spend a little bit of time right there. The first question we've got to ask ourselves is this. Is spiritual competition a driving factor behind the decisions you make in your life? Is competition a driving factor behind the decisions you make in your life? Here, John's disciples are beginning to feel insecure about themselves, aren't they? They had a good thing going, and then insecurity begins to bubble up inside of them. The disciples of John had viewed the baptism of John as part of their identity, as part of their special purpose, as part of what made them a great group of people. And all of a sudden, when that begins to be taken away from them, these insecurities begin to fill that void in their heart that was being filled by people coming to them, by people needing them, especially by people needing them for something spiritual. And these feelings began bubbling up inside of them. Like, I don't want my ministry to shrink. I don't want people to go away from me. I want people to need me. And John says, hey, look, everything we have has been given to us by God in the first place. Everything I have, even the people that are coming to me, that's given to us from God. The Lord gives and he takes away at his choosing. God looks over out all the people that are coming to him for baptism. There's still a large crowd. And he says to his disciples, you think they're coming here? Because we're something to talk about? You think all these people are coming to be baptized in the name of repentance, preparing to the Messiah, because we got some special gifts that they need? It doesn't work that way. It's not about us. God is the one who has given everything we have to us. Now, now here's the thing. The, the, the situation in this text is very clearly a situation in which John's disciples are getting jealous over Jesus. And for Christians today, we have the same exact problem and the same exact insecurities that John the, John the Baptist disciples had, and we carry it over with us into the 21st century. Today, in our life, we, we tend to, to find ourselves loving situations in which people are dependent on the unique skill set that we have, and we forget that we are simply stewards of everything we have. Literally, everything John the Baptist had, he was being asked to be a steward. John says, God, I'm sending these people to, you, to be baptized by you. You be a steward of that and manage that situation well. For us, everything we have in our life has been given to us, and we're simply stewards on behalf of God over, over these things. What that means is that there is nothing in your life no skill you have, no asset you've acquired, no quality you possess, no network you belong to, no gold you've stored up, no children you've raised or area you've succeeded in that was not totally given to you by God in the first place. Now, How easy is it, is it for us to forget that? How easy is it for us to begin to think a little cockily about our life and the things we have in our life as if we were something special to deserve those things? And we begin to say, look at what I've done. Look at what I've created. Look what I've stored up. I must have done it better than that person over there. Rather than looking at what God has given me to steward. You see those two mindsets? One says, look at what I've done. The other says, look at what God has given for me to steward. And one of the worst things we do is that we compartmentalize our faith. 
get this. We think that the things that we've been called to steward are those things that seem spiritual. Our Sunday mornings, our time in the Word, our time in our small group, maybe our spiritual gifts as we use them in the church. (laughs) Everything in our life has been given to us to be stewards of. That includes our homes. Did you know you're a steward of your home and how you use that home to bring about God's community and God's kingdom and the way you use it to, to bring in people to share the love of God with and to share meals with? That includes your networks that God has brought you into, the people you know that you thought you met on accident because you were in the right place at the right time. No, God was designing that moment to include your network if you're a Christian because you're a steward of the networks you belong to. You see, there is no split between the spiritual and the non-spiritual in our life. Everything that is in our life, if we have it, John the Baptist is reminding us in this one simple verse, a person cannot receive anything unless it's been given to him from above. Are you an insecure person? John the Baptist's disciples, that's their problem right now. They're insecure about the moment. Do you find yourself comparing your life to others and thinking, man, they're, they're better at that than me. I, I just can't do what they do. Do you find yourself finding your credibility and your strength by comparing yourself to what others have done or what others have accomplished and saying, man, there's an insecurity. I've got to put a, an outward veneer on my life to make it look like I'm as good as they are at what they do because that's what it looks like to be a strong person. You know, in our day and age, we're insecure about everything, aren't we? I'm insecure about a lot. (laughs) Let me confess that to you. We're insecure about everything. We're insecure about our bodies. We're insecure about our talents and our abilities and compared to other people. We're insecure about our homes and comparing our homes to other people's homes. We're insecure about our parenting and our children and whether or not we're as good as the person down the street or the person we talk to on Sunday. We're insecure about the knowledge we have and the amount of education we have and whether or not we can hold the same conversations with other people We're insecure about who we know and what job we have. We have insecurities for everything. And all of these are rooted in a theological misunderstanding of this one verse that John the Baptist says. It's all rooted in a misunderstanding. Everything we have and everything we don't have is designed by God. Because each of us have a role by God to perform as stewards of God by the very specific things that God has given you. If you find yourself insecure about anything that I listed on that list today, or perhaps there's any thousand of other things that you find insecurity bubbling up in your life, (coughs) what you need to do is go back to this verse and remind yourself that those things in your life that you're insecure about could be that God has chosen not to give that to you. We don't need to beg and choose for those things we don't have, but work within the space God has given us. You see, at the cross, this is where all of our lives are leveled. (laughs) There's no great person before the cross. There's no person that's greater than the other before the cross. We all come as broken people in need of a Savior, and all of us are given gifts to steward in different capacities and different measures. Why would we sit at the foot of cross after being leveled in the playing field before God and, and complain that we've not been given a different thing that someone else has been given? John the Baptist reminds his disciples everything we have has been given to us from God. Do you find yourself being spiritually competitive in different areas of your life. 
If so, it's a sign that we might have some lessons to learn about humility. Number two is this. Do I find joy in the specific role that God has given me within his kingdom? Do I find joy in the specific role that God's given me in his kingdom? John goes on, verses 28 and 29. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him, before the Christ. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Now, first of all, John says these amazingly wise words. I told you before, I'm not the Christ. Some of us need to hear that very clearly. None of us are the Christ. Now, that sounds like a no-brainer, but let me break that down real practically for us. If you've got someone in your life who you are trying to fix and save, you are not their Christ. You can't fix someone, you can't save someone, but Jesus can. And we need to get that attitude out of us as if it's up to us to string together the right words, to string together the right amount of motion, to string together the right amount of care and the right amount of ways to save a person. If you're trying to love on someone that's broken, you can't fix them, Jesus can. Your role is just like John the Baptist to point them towards Jesus and let him have his way with them because he's a good healer. He can do it a whole lot better than our messed up ways can. We are not the Christ. But then he goes on, he says this amazing thing, and he uses this illustration of a wedding. He says, look, I'm just the bride, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the groom's friend in this wedding. That's an old-fashioned way of saying I'm the best man in the wedding. You see, all through Scripture, John the Baptist is referencing a theme that comes up all through Scripture, is that the, the relationship of God to his people is referred to as a wedding. It's referred to as a wedding in which Jesus Christ is the groom and his church, that's all of you if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, is his bride. And all through scripture we see this picture of this beautiful wedding in which Jesus is united to his bride, the church, and the two of them are being fueled in this new relationship that it was established at the cross. And actually all earthly marriages point us towards that greater marriage. All earthly marriages, when two people come together, it's a picture for us of the greater marriage of Jesus and his church. And so we look to Jesus and his church for pictures of, of, of what a regular earthly marriage ought to look like. And when we look to the greater marriage, what do we see? We see Jesus Christ sacrificially loving his bride, the church. We see Jesus Christ washing his disciples' feet, the, the dirtiest job. So earthly marriages, this is what you ought to do. You ought to be washing your husband and your wife's feet. You ought to be caring for them in the, in the, in the hardest and most practical ways. We see him forgiving people, right, on the cross as he was dying, offering forgiveness to those who were crucifying him. Husbands and wives, in earthly marriages, your marriage is to point to that greater marriage. And in marriage, we ought to be offering forgiveness even in the face of a spouse rebelling against us. Why? Because earthly marriages are, are wrapped up in this greater marriage of Jesus to his church. And John reminds his disciples, look, in this great wedding that's taking place between Jesus and his church, I'm just the best man. What's the best man's job? The best man's job is to, is to celebrate and make everyone look to the groom and, and say, hey, hey, look at his day. Look, look at the special day of the groom. The best man wants to become invisible so that the groom would be seen. How inappropriate if the best man were to start saying, hey, wedding party, look at me. Aren't I something? Aren't I special? 
No, the best man, he has one role, and it's to lift up Jesus and to lift up the groom and to point everyone towards the wedding that's taking place. Last night I got to officiate, and I see them sitting in the back back there, a, a wonderful wedding of two folks from our own church, Christina and Arturo. Man, what an incredible wedding. I love getting to officiate weddings. I love seeing this picture, this earthly picture of the greater marriage taking place right before my eyes. And yesterday was just a perfect, beautiful day. Christ was exalted. A new couple came together. You know, weddings are not always like that. <laughs> How many of you have been to weddings before where there's something funky that takes place along the day of the wedding? Or if you've managed or you are married, you look back on your own wedding and you remember any number of mishaps that happened along the way. Let me describe to you a few ways in which weddings tend to go wrong. Well, here's one. Here's one. The invitations go out and uh, one of your friends gets their invitation and they get a little angry that theirs doesn't say plus one on the invitation. They get a phone call to the bride or the groom saying, hey, you do know I'm dating somebody, right? And the bride or the groom has that awkward conversation they got to say where... Yeah, but we don't have enough spots at the seat for you. We don't have enough spots there, sorry. Right? Or how about this one? You know, the, the, the childhood friend who is expecting to be the maid of honor or the best man and they only get the groomsman spot? Oh, man. They get upset and they begin to think, my role is the best man. What are you doing? I'm supposed to be the best man. You can't tell me I'm just a groomsman. I've seen fights break out over this stuff, guys. Or how about the friend that sits down at the table and they realize that they're at table 19, but table 3 at the reception looks pretty awesome over there. And, and they thought they were a whole lot closer to the bride and the groom than table 19. Maybe there was a confusion and, and they thought they were supposed to be at table 3, not table 19. Or how many of you have been to a wedding reception before where Crazy Uncle Larry thought he was supposed to be able to make the speech? Crazy Uncle Larry gets a, a hold of the microphone and he gets up there, but he had not been asked to make a speech for a very specific reason. You been to those weddings before? I think I have. What I just described, while humorous, is literally what John the Baptist is describing in this passage right now about the greater wedding. He says every person has been given a role, they've been given a seat. They've been given a space to stand. They've been given a way to stand. They've been given an invitation. Every person that's in the church has been given a very specific assignment at different seats around the reception, and no one is where they are on accident. No gift has been given. No spot has been assigned without God very thoroughly thinking through this in his great design for the church. You might think that you need the microphone in your hand when it comes to the church, but you might be crazy Uncle Larry and you don't know it. And there's no way you're getting the microphone. You might think you need to be at table 19, but God has assigned you to be at table 24 and to be in that specific community in this specific way. John the Baptist rejoices in his role. He's the best man. None of us are the best man. That was John the Baptist's role. But each of us have a very specific role that God's given us. Do you know your role in the church? Do, do you know your giftings, how God's wired you? H have you learned those things, taken the time to say, this is what I'm doing in this great wedding that I've been invited to. This is how I'm supposed to serve and be a part of lifting up and exalting Jesus Christ and that great wedding that for some reason that I'll never be able to explain God's invited me to participate in. Do you know that role? Do, do you wish 
And do you have jealousy that your role is not someone else's role? And that you're not gifted in the same way or doing the same thing that someone else is doing? If so, perhaps, perhaps we haven't figured out spiritual humility just yet. In Revelation 19, the same author of the Gospel of John comes back in the book of Revelation and he describes this wedding ceremony that will take place for all of us. In Revelation 19, he says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, there is coming a day when the end of days will come and we will sit at the throne, at the table of the wedding of Christ to his church, where all those from every nation, tongue, and tribe throughout all history who are part of God's kingdom will gather before this table and celebrate a meal unlike any other meal that we've ever had at the final wedding. And who are we to sit here today and bicker and complain that our invitation is different than someone else's invitation? If you've been invited to the wedding of the Lamb, praise God. Sit with awe and humility that that is your destiny and you will look before the throne of God and celebrate on that great day. Learn what it means to take your assignment by God and use that assignment and your gifts to lift up Jesus so that the world can look to him just like John the Baptist did. Second question we need to ask ourselves is, do I find joy in the specific role that God's given me in the kingdom? The third question is this. When it comes to humility, am I self-oriented? Oh boy. Myself oriented. John chapter 3, verse 30. John the Baptist says, He must increase. Memorize this verse. He must increase, but I must decrease. Here's John. He's at the pinnacle of his career. He's the most famous guy in all of Israel. He's likely the, the, the most well-known celebrity at the time, probably for some time. And there at the pinnacle of his career, he says, My goal is that people would see me less and less and see Jesus more and more. Now, if ever there was a statement that was the polar opposite of the culture that we live in today and the world that we leave this room and enter into... It's that statement. This is at total direct odds with the self-consumed culture that we live in and the self-consumed culture that we frankly probably live by without even realizing it. I read an interesting article by a Harvard psychologist named Gordon Allport recently, and he was talking about the, the, the condition of neurosis and people who struggle through the condition of neurosis. And a great quote, he says this, any neurotic is living a life which in some respects is extreme in its self-centeredness. The region of his misery represents a complete preoccupation with himself. The very nature of the neurotic disorder is tied to pride. If the sufferer is hypersensitive, resentful, captious, he might be indicating a fear that he will not appear to advantage in competitive situations where he wants to show his worth. If he's chronically indecisive, he's showing fear that he might do the wrong thing and be discredited. These sound a lot like things I've struggled with. If he is over-scrupulous and self-critical, he might be endeavoring to show how praiseworthy he really is. Thus, most neuroses are, from the point of view of religion, mixed with the sin of pride. I can't but help to see myself in that description. Struggling with desiring to be praiseworthy. Indecision for fear that someone will see that I'm incapable of making the right decision. 
These things plague us as a church. Having a fear of being discredited. You know, you, you work so hard to produce a name for yourself, and you make one wrong decision, and it seems like all of a sudden, all that accreditation you had acquired because of good decisions you've made, and suddenly there's a fear that you will be discredited. How much do we point that arrow at our own lives and think about our own self-motivation? You know, in, in God's kingdom, th this is a disorder. Pride is a disorder in God's kingdom. This is not the way that God has made it. Pastors in the old day, when mirrors were invented, when the mirror was invented, pastors in the old day lamented mirrors. <laughs> they lamented mirrors because now people could look in their own face and see themselves and begin to stare at themselves and think about themselves and talk to themselves in the mirror. And if we were back in the day when mirrors were invented, pastors would be lamenting, be careful with your mirrors. Don't look at yourself too much. This life is not about you. How many hours are you going to spend in front of that thing? Today, one of the most popular products in the market is a selfie stick. It's a multi-million million dollar industry across our nation and across the globe. We've taken mirrors to a whole new extreme. On Facebook, the most common page that people look at is their own. This is consuming us. And it's a disorder from the way that God designed our lives to be oriented. Our lives are not oriented to bring self-praise to ourselves. They're oriented originally in the way God designed it to bring praise and celebration to Jesus and to point everything towards Christ. One of the reasons that depression and suicide are rampant in our culture today is because we keep looking at ourselves in the mirror, finding all the flaws and imperfections with ourselves. I don't know how many mornings i got to wake up to another news article of a shooting that took place in a school. And I know that that conversation is way more complex than just one thing, but I know part of it is a condition of constantly looking at yourself and making your world very small by making yourself the center of it. Our world was meant to be much bigger than ourselves. We are so small. Jesus is so big. He's invited us to a much greater world than the small world of focusing in on ourselves. This is the same trick that Satan got Adam and Eve with in the garden. Hey, Adam and Eve, stop looking at God. Think about yourselves for just a second. Eat of the tree. And we make the same mistake every day when we walk out those doors. Park Community Church. When we walk outside, when we go about our life, is the orientation of our life looking to Christ, pointing others to Christ, pointing ourselves to Jesus, ever expanding the bigness of the world that we live in? We constantly looking at ourselves in the mirror, thinking about all the things that our life consists of. Let's look to Jesus for just a second. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 says this, Have this mind among yourselves. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on Jesus the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God our Father. 
Paul says that if you want to know what human thriving and flourishing looks like, have this mind among yourselves. Look to Jesus Christ and the humility that he exemplified. And he says that it can live inside of you as well. You want to know what it looks like to have a meaningful, ever-expanding, bigger, more beautiful life? It's only found in uniting yourself to Jesus Christ. And look at what the text says in Philippians. It says that Christ emptied himself. Though he was in the form of God, that doesn't say he became less than God. It says that he emptied himself. He took on flesh and blood. He emptied himself. He, he, he took the dirty role of washing his disciples' feet, even when they were rebellious to him. He, he emptied himself. He, he loved those who everyone else said was unlovable and unclean. He emptied himself by healing the forgotten and passing by, not just passing by those whom others would walk by on the street and not think two thoughts about. He emptied himself by reaching out his hand and touching the leper who no one else would even go near. He emptied himself when he ate with prostitutes and criminals and went into their home and said, I'm going to be near you because you need the love of God. He emptied himself when he offered forgiveness to those who were crucifying him on the cross, he emptied himself when he shed his blood on the cross as a substitution for you and me taking our place on the cross. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, this is what it means to unite yourself to Christ. You're uniting yourself to a God who has substituted himself, becoming like man, becoming like you so he could take your place on the cross, his blood shed for yours. You need to place your faith in him. And, and, and what Paul says in Philippians, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Jesus Christ. What that says is that this can be formed in you. Not that you can become Jesus. He's the only one who can take your place on the cross. But that humility that Jesus loved by, that's offered to you if you unite yourself to him. If you find yourself and you're constantly looking at yourself and your world is small because it's all about how big can I make myself, unite yourself to Christ. Let him begin to take ownership of your life and he will make your life far bigger, sweeter, and greater than a world where you are the center of the universe. May our worlds be ever increasing as we unite ourselves to Christ, the one who is over all and may our names, even the name of Park Community Church, would it be decreasing as Christ is exalted through the ministry of our hands?